Hello and welcome to the last lecture in my course on Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. It's a bit of a pity to be presenting it from home because it was supposed to be the grand finale, but I thought I would do something special anyway for this final lecture and concentrate a bit more on a single work of art, on a single ballet, which is the prodigal son. Why? Because this was the last Diaghilev premiere. This was the last ballet in which Diaghilev was very, very closely involved. And also because I love it myself and I still remember how for the first time, when I saw it for the first time on stage, I just was uh, absolutely surprised and excited at every moment. And I felt as if I was part of the original Diaghilev audience, as if I was there in 1929, because this ballet came to us uh, well-preserved. It's of course not quite uh, as it was because Balanchine changed the choreography a little bit, but nevertheless, it's pretty close. And we can see it uh, uh, almost as it was and experience it as it was. I will start though with the concept, with the idea of the dehumanization of art. And from there, proceed to the, our theme of return to emotion. So this is the title uh, of uh, an essay, which was published in 1925 by the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset. The dehumanization of art, it sounds very negative to us. Today, dehumanization is usually something horrible, but uh, in fact, uh, he used it neutrally, uh, and if not positively, because he, he used it to describe the new aesthetic of modernism. And this is what he said. Art must not proceed by psychic contagion, for psychic contagion is an unconscious phenomenon, and art ought to be full clarity, high noon of the intellect. Grieving and rejoicing at such human destinies as a work of art presents or narrates is a very different thing from true artistic pleasure. Preoccupation with the human content of the work is in principle incompatible with aesthetic enjoyment proper. It's a very radical statement. Yeah, it of course has to do with modernism uh, conceiving itself in opposition to romanticism yeah, and all these uh, empathetic words of works of art, which invited you to emote yeah, and empathize with the characters. So this, you have the opposite. And Ortega Gasset actually was talking about music in his essay as well, and specifically about Stravinsky. And Stravinsky himself uh, also made uh, very striking statements, quite radical statements about his own music and about uh, the total lack uh, of expression that is needed in music. This is what he said. I consider that music is by its very nature essentially powerless to express anything at all, or whether a feeling, an attitude of mind, or psychological mood, a phenomenon of nature, etc. Expression has never been an inherent property of music. This is by no means the purpose of its existence. Yeah. And further, yeah, possibly even more radically, more people, most people like music because it gives them certain emotions, such as joy, grief, sadness, an image of nature, a subject for daydreams, or still better, oblivion from life. Isn't that true? Music would not be worth much if it were reduced to such an end. When people have learned to love music for itself, when they listen with other ears, 
the enjoyment will be of a far higher and more potent order and they will be able to judge it on a higher plane and realize its intrinsic value. So this is very close to what Ortega and Gasset was saying. He used this very famous metaphor of a garden behind the window um, and you can only focus either on the garden, which is a, a, a metaphor for what goes on in terms of a story in a work of art, or on a window pane when you see, you know, focus on the lens through which you can see the garden. You can't focus on both at once. So what he was saying is that if you want to uh, have a proper aesthetic appreciation of a work of art, you have to in a sense, not have the, too much of the human content. Otherwise, you, you're mistaking one for another. Another person to say something similar was Jean Cocteau, and he wrote his own manifesto, Le Coq et l'Arlequin, even early in 1918. So I'll quote a little bit from there. Emotion resulting from a certain work of art is only of value when it is not obtained by sentimental blackmail. Or another quote, Nothing is as enervating as to lie and soak for a long time in a warm bath. Enough of music in which one lies and soaks. Yeah, so all from all kinds of uh, sides, they were trying to attack late Romanticism and even Impressionism as well you know, to create something new in the 20s. So what do you get if you uh, take Stravinsky and take Jean Cocteau them together. You get Oedipus Rex, which was uh, an opera oratorio by Stravinsky, written for the uh, anniversary season of 1927. It was 20 years since Diaghilev started doing the Russian season, and it was supposed to be a gift for Diaghilev. Uh, the work proceeded in secret, and Diaghilev was not involved until the last moment, and when he got involved, he got horrified because it was a very strange piece. The idea was Stravinsky's and Cocteau agreed uh, to this commission on the condition that his text would be translated into Latin. Yeah, so you're creating distance between the audience and the stage by translating it into this sacred language, which will not be understood, presumably. But Cocteau thought that this would uh, assure the monumentality of his piece, which is what he was seeking. And Stravinsky, too, was happy to treat the text as kind of phonetic material for his music, so that he didn't have to bother with expressing the meaning of the words. Yeah, he just, it's just syllables. Uh, so it was a dramatic work, which was deliberately and perversely very static. And the set, invented by Cocteau and sketched by Stravinsky's son, Theodore, was supposed to have no depth and the costumes were supposed to be built into the set in such a way that you could only see the hands and the heads moving but everything else was kind of made of stone you know they were supposed to be living statues and uh, there was another invention of Cocteau's which was to uh, that the the drama itself had to be interrupted all the time by the narrator who was supposed to be uh, dressed in evening dress and tails and uh, behaving like a master of ceremonies, you know, slightly, uh, slightly snobbish, I guess, presentation or kind of educational presentation, slightly condescending to the audience relating the story of Oedipus. Uh, he wanted to perform that role himself, actually. So uh, 
you can see how there are several layers of distancing yeah, between stage and the, the um, audience. First of all, the Latin, yeah, the, the narrator who creates even more distance, this very static set, lack of action. Yeah, so all these things, you, you just have all these obstacles uh, between the audience and the stage. So when uh, Diaghilev found out about it, he was not impressed and he actually saw the set and refused uh, to stage it. Um, also refused to employ Cocteau as narrator, which was also um, was disappointing for him. Uh, and it was done as a concert work and Diaghilev basically disliked it and uh, described it as a kind of macabre gift, yeah, un cadeau très macabre. So that already reflects some kind of tension between Stravinsky and Diaghilev, I think, at that point. And it's obviously something that Diaghilev dislike, this complete absence of expression, this very perverse absence of expression started grating on him. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I would like to play you one very famous moment from uh, that piece uh, in a production that is possibly the closest to what they wanted. And yet at the same time, you, you can see that it departs because you can see a very, very expressive performance of Jesse Norman as Jocasta. And very interestingly, in the music, you can see how Stravinsky basically parodies yeah, or uses the idiom of Verdi, yeah, so something extremely emotional. And of course, he plays with it, he modernizes it, but somehow the expression of the music, that great emotional power that it possesses, still can break through all these walls of distancing. Yeah, so it's a very exciting moment.
Extremely powerful music and extremely powerful performance here. So uh, my next point in this lecture is uh, about the rivalry between Prokofiev and Stravinsky at that point and uh, about Diaghilev's relationships with, uh, with both of them. You can see them, him, them here on, in this picture together, uh, Stravinsky looking very glum, uh, Prokofiev smiling shyly. Uh, this Ernest Tanzer may the conductor um, on the left as well. Uh, so in 1927, Oedipus Rex, which as I said was not successful, um, played against Le Pas d'Acier, which as you may remember was Diaghilev's Bolshevist ballet, um, Prokofiev's Bolshevist ballet, um, which Diaghilev made him do and which was a very risky idea, but nevertheless it, uh, it succeeded because the public loved it. So it seemed like Prokofiev won that round. Yeah, and that was a new thing for him because he was always in the shadow of Stravinsky and everything he did was a kind of pale copy, um, you know, for Diaghilev before, you know, Shoot was a kind of pale copy of Petrushka plus the Rite of Spring or something like that. So, um, you know, he felt he was, he was trailing and now this, this was his chance. And of course he did dearly want to be on the right side of Diaghilev and admired him hugely. In 1928, of course, there was great success of Stravinsky's with Apollon Musagette, Stravinsky and Balanchine. We talked about that. It's a great uh, piece, but there was something uh, that Diaghilev disliked about it, I think, um, because he he made a big cut in it in, in, um, in perf subsequent performances and without consulting Stravinsky. Stravinsky was very, very upset about that. And as for Prokofiev, Prokofiev just didn't like the whole idea of neoclassicism, which is used uh, using borrowed materials, borrowed musical idioms. And he said, it's pitiful material, uh, stolen from the most disgraceful pockets, Gounod and Delib and Wagner, even Minkus. Yeah, Minkus, a ballet composer, Delib, another ballet composer. Obviously, Prokofiev didn't respect them very much. And uh, in um, uh, 1928, also something else happened that really um, increased this rift between Diaghilev and Stravinsky. And that was Stravinsky doing a ballet for Ida Rubinstein, which was the rival company. And it was the Fairy's Kiss or Baiser de la Thé, um, based on the music of Tchaikovsky. Uh, and this is what Diaghilev said in a private letter about it. Uh, it was an ill-judged choice of music by Tchaikovsky, tiresome and lacrimose, allegedly brilliantly orchestrated by Igor. I say allegedly because to me it sounds grey and the whole style is moribund. Yeah, so that's quite, quite powerful. And I won't even quote what he said about Ida Rubinstein's dancing. He just had complete contempt for her. Uh, so, um, so that didn't go down very well. And in 1929, uh, Prokofiev's new ballet, in which Diaghilev was very, very involved, was playing against a, an old ballet by Stravinsky, which, which was an example of this dehumanization, because it was a burlesque uh, ballet. Uh, Renard, yeah, it was. You can see the the costumes. Uh, this is a kind of fable about. 
animals, yeah, the cockerel and the goat and the cat, and uh, um, there's not very much that you can even understand in the text. It's all based on nonsense lyrics. It's a wonderful piece of music, but it is something that belonged to an old aesthetic that Diaghilev didn't quite associate himself with anymore. So let's finally uh, address L'Enfant Prodigue, the prodigal son, this new ballet that uh, Diaghilev commissioned from Prokofiev. So to create this scenario, uh, he used uh, Boris Kachno, who was his secretary and one-time lover, and basically somebody he relied on, his librettist. Uh, for design, he invited George Rouault, and we're going to uh, see the sets in a moment, uh, and the choreographer was supposed to be Balanchine. So this is Kakno and Diaghilev. Uh, it seems that Prokofiev disliked the whole idea of Kakno being involved. There was this animosity between them from the very start. And uh, Prokofiev really wanted to pretend that this libretto, this scenario by, by Kakno never happened. Um, what he actually got um, from him originally was this very short uh, description of 10 numbers. And uh, based on these short descriptions that you can see with timings, he created most of the music before he got any detailed libretto. So he was always trying to pretend that Kahnozov hadn't done anything, and it was just Prokofiev writing the music on the biblical tale. He didn't want any intermediaries between himself and the biblical story, and even have had a terrible row with Kahno and, uh, and the court case about royalties, because he just wanted to write him out altogether. Anyway, the idea of the scenario was to transfer the parable on the, of the prodigal son onto the Russian soil. And you might be surprised by that, because actually it doesn't look very much like a Russian ballet. There's not much that's Russian. There's tiny details maybe in the costumes, in the choreography, and in the music occasionally that set it in Russia. But I think the Rouault main design um, of the set uh, sets it somewhere in the Near East and makes it much more universal. So uh, Balanchine thought that the story was great. This is what he said about it. I think this is one of the best of all ballet libretti. It is simplicity itself in the form of A, B and then A again. It's a story of someone who has everything who throws it all away to have nothing and then has everything again. It seemed relatively simple to portray the roles of father and son. No one would mistake their identity. The story of the older son was not interesting for the dance and we wisely omitted it from the idea of the ballet. Now, you might be also surprised about that because some commentators on the Bible will say that that story, that part of the story about the older son getting jealous uh, of this uh, offender being treated so nicely by his father while he had done nothing wrong uh, is possibly the main point of this parable. But, you know, they did just uh, got rid of it. Um, so um, why did Prokofiev was, uh, why was Prokofiev so adamant that he was working with the Bible and not with Kahno's libretto? I think one of the things that explains this to us was Prokofiev's conversion to Christian science, which happened uh, just a few years previous. 
much has been written about it. Uh, it's interesting to read about this in Prokofiev's diaries. Um, and it seems that he used Christian science very much um, in this very utilitarian way, in an attempt to control his state of health, his mood, to get rid of his head headaches, to, uh, to be less angry with his wife because they were having terrible rows. Uh, so to create harmony around himself and a kind of ideal conditions for his creative work. And this is what he writes in his diary. When we think only of good, of God and his infinite ideas, harmonious conditions are externalized. So by thinking, yeah, you create harmony in the outer world. You can cure people even by, by uses, using a moral effort. Uh, and an intellectual effort. So uh, this is what Christian science was for him. But in any case, I think that is why this Christian parable had special significance for him. It was dear to his heart. And interestingly, in the piano pieces that he played for Diaghilev as an example of his style at the time, which are called choses things in themselves, he was looking to create this purer and simpler style, I think, because of the influence of Christian science. And this quest continues in the ballet. So the composition of the music proceeded with exceptionally little effort, he tells us in his diary, helped by the fact that I had decided to compose the prodigal son in a simple style, eschewing sophisticated elaborations. Diaghilev's parting words to me had been, your piano pieces, this piano pieces, shows en soin, are a shade arid. I want the ballet you're writing for me to be more straightforward. And what he means is more emotionally straightforward yeah, and simpler in style. And Prokofiev gives us a very good um, elaboration of this. This is another quote from his diary. The term modern in music used to be attached to the search for new harmonies then moved to the search for beauty in all kinds of insincere contrivances and complexities. More perceptive composers soon tired of this and went back to seeking simplicity. Not, however, the old simplicity, but the new one. Diaghilev, of course, was with this new wave. So new simplicity in music, this is what we're talking about. From Prokofiev's wonderful diary, uh, we can trace the whole process of composition um, and the whole pros process of Diaghilev's involvement. Diaghilev heard the ballet seven times as a work in progress and gave the most detailed advice and criticism, asking him to rewrite certain numbers, to make cuts and also to make additions, even to uh, made him gave him advice on how many bars he has to have at the very end, you know, add one bar more. It's, it's just amazing to what extent he was involved in this score. Prokofiev was very, very inspired when working on this ballet. So he sort of overfulfilled the plan and actually composed the symphony at the same time from the overflow uh, of music from the ballet and also using some of the music from the ballet. The most problematic character uh, was the siren or the temptress or the seductress, uh, whichever way you call her. 
because Diaghilev wanted the music um, for her to be more explicitly erotic. This again, what uh, Prokofiev is saying. My conception had been of a shadowy, mysterious being seen through the eyes of an innocent youth. Seductive, but as yet unknown. Diaghilev, however, wanted a sensual creature whom he proceeded to describe in a string of graphically obscene expressions. Uh, I think that's fascinating. They had a little bit of an argument about this, and in the end, Prokofiev rewrote the theme. I still think that it is not erotic music. Uh, it is certainly sensuous and sensual, and it has all these little glissandine slides in it. Uh, and yet, you can easily imagine, I think, it, even with a character like Juliet, for example, from Romeo and Juliet, that it has some kind of purity and transparency about it still. I'm going to play you just the theme. on the pas de deux now from Prokofiev's diary. I fear it's not quite what Diaghilev wanted. It's not passionate enough. He now wants the exact opposite of what he was advocating to me in Rome in 1915, a trait he shares with Stravinsky, is to insist with unassailable conviction that only such and such music is worth composing, and then a year later to maintain the opposite. Uh, but nevertheless, actually, Diaghilev did like the pas de deux uh, that Prokofiev had written for this. Uh, one of the most wonderful stories from Prokofiev's diaries on the prodigal son is the story of the very ending, which he calls the apotheosis. And I will quote from it uh, at length because I just think it's absolutely wonderful. I had not yet conceived the end of the ballet. I said in this libretto, the end is envisaged as a kind of apotheosis, but this is inappropriate. We need something more nuanced. I suggested borrowing a theme from the second Chausansois, which I love very much, but Diaghilev was reluctant to accept this. It should be simpler, he said, softer and more tender. And indeed, I felt myself that the theme that I had suggested was not quite right. We parted on good terms, Diaghilev happy with what he had heard of the ballet. Later that night, falling asleep, I was still searching for a new theme, limpid and unclouded. I thought that the melody illustrating a parable from the Gospels should seem to be coming from on high. About one o'clock at night, I got up and jotted down two bars. Straight away in the morning, I worked on the idea that had come to me last night, the concluding scene of the ballet when the father embraces his son. My aim as I worked was to preserve the essence of the previous nights of Flatus. And the result was an absolutely superb theme. And all day I was walking on air as if it was my main day. It's not being very modest here, but let us hear it first without the, uh, the choreography. Just listen to it. <laughs> 
and Jagler was very pleased. He was kind of terrified before Jagler played him, before Prokofiev played him this theme. But when he heard it, he thought, yeah, the end was there. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, design. Uh, so um, they wanted Matisse, actually. Diaghilev wanted Matisse. Matisse wasn't available. So uh, they employed uh, Georges-Henri Rouault, uh, who was um, a, a pupil of Matisse and who was very famous for his Christian pieces. Mm, and you can see that um, he had a training in stained glass making. Yeah, you can see this in the style that he has this dark contours uh, everywhere and it's a very powerful um, painting so uh, Rouault was um, quite tardy with his uh, sketches and they didn't have a set for a very long time and then at the last moment he produced that which impressed everyone greatly it seems like something yeah which is sketched very quickly and then it's blown up to this enormous scale of this stage and this is the, the tent for the second scene so Prokofiev thought they were very powerful and biblical in feeling and there was another part of the design which was this uh, single prop it uh, looks like a bench or a fence it could be turned into a table it could be turned into a pillar it becomes all kinds of things even a boat in in which you can row um, so uh, this universal kind of constructivist idea of using something very simple and pretending it's different things um, so that was the idea of Balanchine uh, and as he said, um, uh, he invented it in order to fill the time somehow because Prokofiev actually wrote much more music than uh, was required of him. Uh, so here you can see uh, wonderful pictures of uh, Serge Lifar, um, who was the prodigal uh, and uh, the original prodigal son and Filia Dubrovska, who was the siren. Uh, so the issue of choreography, Balanchine really um, didn't like um, working on this ballet quite as much as he enjoyed his collaboration with Stravinsky on Apollo. That, that is clear from what he says. He said Prokofiev was a bastard, <laughs> so I had to invent to fill out the music. The big prop is my invention to fill time. Yeah, he says, well, what, what what are we going to do? There is no dancing, especially after the prodigal son is beaten up and kind of incapacitated. He can't dance. He just crawls on stage and you have six pages of music, music to choreograph. What do you do with it? So thankfully, uh, Lefar really um, identified with the role. And at the last moment produced this very inspired improvisation, which I think won the day. Uh, other points on the choreography, um, yes, what Balanchine says that he had in mind the Byzantine icons that are so familiar to all the Russians, uh, possibly in the image of the father, um, most of all, and these family scenes you can sometimes see in the groupings, there is something from the icon. Uh, and also in the choreography, you will find this very experimental influence. 
uh, that comes from Balanchine's background because he was just came from the Soviet Union when where ballet was incredibly avant-garde at the time and he was influenced by choreographers like Galizovsky and Foriger and he was part of this so-called fex uh, eccentric actor factory so he actually um, was um, familiar with with all the new sort of eccentric things to do on stage and you will see some of them especially in the part of the siren and also in, uh, for the companions so uh, let's start with the sun yeah the the sun is presented from the very start uh, as this virile virtuoso there are neoclassical elements uh, the high jumps incredibly exciting but towards the end it will be completely the opposite yeah it will be based on mime and these very highly expressive movements which were partially improvised by Elifari. Let us see the very beginning. The one more thing I want to say about this beginning is that you will hear this very active you know, masculine theme at the start and then a more feminine, a more lyrical theme. And you might imagine that Prokofiev actually had written it uh, for the prodigal son and then for the sisters. That's not how it's staged. And there are uh, many moments like that when you feel that the music doesn't quite coincide or rather the choreography doesn't coincide with the music um, and it it uh, i think prokofiev was slightly disappointed by that uh, maybe not even slightly but um that i think was a necessity because uh, really there was no proper collaboration be between prokofiev and balanchine prokofiev just wrote the music and he wrote it in a very already symphonic way you know various themes were appearing several times so it was very difficult to stage it to the music and i think you know balanchine still did a wonderful job it all fits somehow let us see the beginning <laughs> Barishnikov is wonderful here as this rebelling teenager, yeah, having a temper tantrum. Uh, so, um, what about the the companions, as they are called? Yeah, the, the evil uh, company that that he he meets on the way. Uh, 
So that's completely the opposite. They are represented in very grotesque way. It's a kind of updating of Fokin's ideas, I think, if you remember what he did for Kashi's kingdom and the Firebird, uh, but in a, in a more mechanistic presentation, in, in a more sort of stylized presentations, I guess. Um, let's have a look. It fits with the music wonderfully. <laughs> like a multi-legged insect or something like that or sometimes you yeah, are forming these very strange shapes so really striking striking image of these companions now the siren uh, is also uh, amazingly different contrasting style of dancing highly virtuosic on point yeah on point with acrobatic elements influenced actually by the act of music hall dancers Mitty and Tilio, uh, here they are, with these very high lifts, uh, kind of vertiginous lifts. Mm. And uh, the way uh, the siren is portrayed, the, the way uh, she's dressed even, yeah? she's, she's actually on point, not for any reason that you would be on point in classical ballet. Uh, it's to make her very tall and domineering. And she also has this incredible headdress, yeah, which makes her so much taller than even the... the uh, uh, quite tall Barishnikov, yeah, so um, makes her this domineering presence and uh, highly virtuosic dance. Let's have a look. <laughs> Thank you. 
hated it actually he thought it was too obscene too suggestive yeah she uses her scarf like almost like a dancing pole you know and it's all so very explicit and yet at the same time it's kind of distanced and uh, everyone was talking about this weird atmosphere that was created uh, by her dancing just precisely because everything about the movements was so unusual uh, there's a wonderful quote from Filia Dubrovska, who was the first uh, performer in this role. The steps were easy, but the style was difficult, because I expected to be coquettish, but Diaghilev said not to smile or show any emotion. I had to speak with the legs and to hypnotize the sun like a snake, holding him with my eyes. I liked very much doing something so new. I was only a little embarrassed when the rest of the company first came to see it. That's, that's a wonderful touch as well, that she was still kind of embarrassed about this explicit nature of the dance. Uh, but uh, let's see a bit of the pas de deux and see how she hypnotizes him. And it's a fantastic um, moment. <laughs> this very difficult thing to perform this acrobatic trick yeah the sliding belt yeah when she slides around him like a belt that was the bit that they borrowed from uh, from this famous um, musical review couple and the music if you'd noticed also it's not very much pas de deux amorous music it's actually was something else that Diaghilev made Prokofiev slow down yeah he said oh, let's play this play this music slower and then you'll have to cut it. So it was down to this little detail how he was actually in control of the score. Now, uh, it very soon unravels, uh, yeah, and the, the prodigal son gets beaten up and robbed um, by this company of, by these companions. Um, and uh, it's also wonderfully done. You can see how this domination, uh, just suddenly domination of the seductress of the siren is changed to a scene of uh, of complete catastrophe when he is robbed 
uh, tied to the pillar, he becomes martyred. He, he looks very much like San Sebastian. And I think that was the visual image that uh, influenced uh, this presentation. And you have a very interesting number after that with just three clarinets yeah, playing this, this music. And the fingers of the companions serve as both the ties, the ropes that they've tied them to, and also the fingers that they're searching him. <laughs> surprise almost in every second yeah of this of this choreography every, every single moment you see something amazing and uh, it goes very well in this uh, with the music actually in this scene and after he's been dropped yeah there is this uh, very painful crawl back and what do you do here Balanchine was really in trouble yeah because he, he had this six minutes of music to deal with and uh, nothing to do yeah a dancer who can't dance uh, so we can see a little bit of what sort of was improvised by Lifat, I suppose, for this. And it really depends on this solo artist, on the, on the, on the dancer, uh, to come up with, with something uh, that would really move you at this point. <laughs>
Prokofiev actually needed that much music and I think it works very effectively because it has to be this long road home, the time to reflect that is necessary for the drama and for that uplifting apotheosis that happened at the end. I think he timed it very well, but choreographically it was very difficult to do. So what was the reception? Uh, the audiences uh, warmed to it, loved it. Mm, these are various quotes from the critics that you can see and uh, I think possibly the most interesting of them is the one by Andrea Levinson who said that it's a combination of the pathetic and the caricature. Yeah, so the pathos and the caricature. And that's a very, very interesting idea because it, indeed we have two aesthetics here at the same time. Grotesque dancing for the companions and uh, this very expressive, highly expressive and emotional dancing for the prodigal son. Uh, I can compare it with something else that happens uh, in one of the lectures I've given last year. It's about Shostakovich's opera Lady Macbeth, exactly the same thing, that some characters are humanized and some are dehumanized. And you as an audience are manipulated in this way because you know from the grotesque music or grotesque dancing that you should have contempt for these characters. And on the contrary, for the lyrical characters, you have to have empathy. So something that Shostakovich does it very similar that Diaghilev has thought up in this ballet and Prokofiev, of course, embodied so well. Uh, this is a quote also, a very good quote from Lydia Sokolova, Sokolova as, as they called her, one of the dancers in the troupe. And this is what she said at the time. In the recent years, the Russian ballet had fought shy of the dramatic and passionate works for which they had originally been famous. And Balanchine's specialty was a kind of up-to-date classicism. Now he had to do something to match the grandeur of the parable and the force of Prokofiev's music. Lefar was given an opportunity to let himself go in an emotional role, the like of which had not been seen in Bali since the days of Fulkin. So a return to emotion, yet in a very different way, uh, as you have seen. We have to talk about the very end and briefly uh, I will tell you the circumstances of uh, Diaghilev's death. It was very sudden. It happened very soon after the se season ended. It happened in Venice. Stravinsky was still on bad terms with him and uh, I think that was a wound that never healed, that Diaghilev died without them reconciling. But Diaghilev all the way uh, knew what Stravinsky, what Colossus Stravinsky was. And this is a passage from a private letter from 23rd of July, 1929, when the Rite of Spring was performed in London and with great success. And this is what he says, yesterday Le Sacre was a real triumph. The imbeciles finally grasped it. The Times says that Le Sacre is for the 20th century what Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was for the 19th at last. So Stravinsky was still on his mind. Uh, he was buried in Venice uh, on the San Michele Cemetery on the island. Uh, this is his grave. Uh, here you can see Stravinsky taking flowers to his grave and after he died uh, he was also interred there um, at his own request. 
next to his mentor. For Prokofiev, it was also a, a huge tragedy, Diaghilev's death, because uh, his big ideas of becoming the new Stravinsky, which he potentially could have become uh, had Diaghilev lived for another maybe five years and produced several more ballets with him, uh, was not to materialize. And that partially made him actually choose the return to return to the USSR. By way of concluding the series, um, I put together very condensed, uh, in very condensed way, a few points about the Ballerus and their um, significance. They completely overhauled the ballet genre, making it a cutting-edge artistic enterprise, but without, without losing the core audience of balletta names. Yeah, it was still exciting for the lovers of ballet, but it also brought some new audiences who enjoyed uh, the, the artistic provocation. Uh, they reimagined ballet as true synthesis of the arts, where each one can come to the fore at different points. There are some ballets driven by design, as we know, like La Chatte, or, or some of them are driven by the music, by the score, as in this case, in the prodigal song. And in some of them, yeah, there's a perfect uh, alliance of music and choreography, such as Apollo or the Rite of Spring. They explored a huge variety of modernist ideas, sometimes playing them off against each other, doing exactly the opposite of what they had done the previous year. Diaghilev really created a hothouse for experimentation among leading international artists who were often placed in competition with each other and that motivated them to motivated them to go further one step further to outdo their rivals and of course they are sometimes forced in these collaborations sometimes they, these collaborations didn't work but Diaghilev didn't uh, didn't mind occasional failure to try out you know to to bring Picasso into something that he didn't particularly like or you know it, it wasn't worried about that and sometimes it worked really well and finally uh, they managed to draw attention to Russian culture as first as an exotic newcomer to the international stage but then raised its status so it became an essential component of international modernism I think by the time we are in the 20s uh, all these artists such as Stravinsky, Zapra, Kofiev are not necessarily seen as Russian. Yeah, but they are cutting edge modernist artists in the, in the heart of Europe. And this is what Diaghilev had also done. And uh, to end on this note of pathos, uh, I guess, uh, I decided to end uh, with the ending of the prodigal son and just leave you with that it's a wonderful moment um, which uh, always takes my breath away uh, and uh, some, some wonderful moment where both the music and the choreography do something special something amazing something profound something lasting uh, it's, it's a great scene to end on and uh, before I do that, I would like to thank you for your attention and for staying with me if, if you watched all the lectures, uh, for coming to my lectures, 
for asking your questions, uh, for motivating me, for making me inspired. Thank you very much. It was a great thing to do. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoyed this last clip. And